Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Mark chapter 9, verse 37. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If we call to mind um, some of the immediate setting of the gospel that we just heard, it helps to make sense of of what we heard. So you'll um, remember or or be familiar with that just prior to um, this incident that we heard about in today's gospel, Jesus had called three of the disciples up to the mountain where he was transfigured. So he selected three of the twelve, and it's not hard to imagine that the other nine might have wondered, well, why didn't I get invited? What did you guys even do up there? And remember how the Lord said, don't tell anyone about this until after I'm raised. So there would have been a little... it's, It's easy to imagine some friction among the apostolic band in that moment. And then Jesus has said, I'm going to die. And they, they weren't confused about the I'm going to die bit. Well, they were probably somewhat confused, but it still made logical sense to them, right? Like they knew what death was. They'd seen people killed in their life, almost certainly from the harsh Roman overlords. Um, they didn't get the, but I'll be raised bit, right? That's the bit that until Jesus was raised, who could imagine immortal life in a resurrected body? So, but they, what, they, what they do get is that their leader... The, the one they've been following and, and, what, and hiking with and listening to his teaching and following for these years now has just said he's about to die. So there's going to be like this leadership vacuum. And the, the three had just recently been kind of called up to this special meeting on a mountain that they were pretty hush-hush about. And so you can kind of see, oh, that's kind of um, an understandable ground for asking, well, who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? As in fact they asked. Um, and one of the things I think is just worth pointing out is their, their goal is good. Right? Well, I think sometimes we hear this passage and we think, oh, they were squabbling about who's going to be like the greatest worldly leader. They weren't. They were arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. It was a, it was a spiritual ambition in its goal. Right? That we should actually want to be great in the kingdom of God. That wouldn't be, that would be a good thing, not a foolish thing to long for. What they had wrong was their conception of what greatness was and how to get there. So their end was right, but their means were wrong. And that's what the Lord corrects them on. He, of course, knew what they were talking about, as it actually says in one of the other Gospel accounts. So Jesus corrects their means and their vision of what greatness is. He doesn't say, oh, don't, don't, want, don't long for that. He just completely re- redefines greatness with this paradox. He who would be the greatest must be least of all. Right? He's using the polar opposite language, least and greatest, and servant of all. And when he's asking them to do this, he's merely applying and extending the general call he's already given them to follow himself. Right? This is a picture of Jesus himself. He, we see out throughout the, the great theme of the New Testament. He who, the Son of God, humbled himself to become a servant of all. Right? Even while we were enemies, he came to serve us. He's calling us, therefore, he's calling the disciples to be imitators of his own embodiment of greatness, which was becoming the least. As he says in John's Gospel, the Son of Man came not to be served, as would have been rightfully his. Right? The angels attend him day and night, but to serve. And then one of the things that struck me is that how um, much Jesus and all of God's word meets us in our um, 
with what we need to really get into these truths. So he doesn't just say, be lowly. He then shows us how to do that. And what he does is he takes this child. And I, I sort of wondered, I've always wondered, where did that child come from? And uh, it was a, one of the commentators on the scriptures I looked at this week who pointed out that the gospel says the detail. We know the city they're in, Caponium, and we know from earlier in the gospel that's where Peter and Andrew are from. And it says that they're in the house. So they must be in, the, well, I shouldn't say must, they're almost certainly in a house of a relative of Peter and Andrew's. This is their hometown. That's who would have provided them hospitality. And so this child is probably uh, something like a second cousin or a nephew or, or of Peter and Andrew. So Because there's this family around. So Jesus grabs this child who's there in the house, and, and, and he's just told the apostles, you need to be the least and servant of all. And then he takes this child and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And, and the thing that makes this whole episode make sense is to recognize that in the first century, a child was viewed as sort of the least of the ranking members of society. Right? They didn't have as much sort of uh, affection and attention to children in the pre-Christian era as we, as we receive now. I'll come to that in just a second. But what Jesus does is he takes the person that everyone would have agreed socially, this is the person least on the, on the ladder, and he says, receive this one. Receive is the word you usually use for an honored guest. Right? You'd say, receive the nobleman for, for dinner. You know, receive the king into your town. Receive your relative. Receive this child. Right? Pay them attention. Give them hospitality. Love them and serve them. So what he does is he takes the one that everyone would have thought was least on the social ladder and says, serve this one. And that's how you get to be the least. If you take, go to the bottom of the ladder and you're serving that person, well, that makes you least of all. Right? Do you see how that's connected with Jesus' teaching about being least of all? That you've, if you serve the person that you perceive to be least, if you serve them, you make yourself the least. Um, and just a little bit on sort of the, specifically uh, the, what this is, how this relates to children. Um, in the pre-Christian era, like I said, um, there wasn't the same regard for children. Just to give you a little snapshot of that, you know, archaeologists, they find all these random bits of paper like in the ground with all these fragments of text on them. And there's tens of thousands of these. And, and it, it, these fascinating little snapshots into what life was like from the era whenever that scrap of paper was. So we've kind of gathered all the papers, all, these, all the ones we've found so far from like the first and second century. Um, uh, BC and AD. And, and one of them, just to, just to read from it, it's called... Uh, Papyrus Oxyroncus 744, right? That's like the catalog number. It's this list of a husband he's writing to his wife, and it's this sort of like matter-of-fact list, like make sure this bill is paid if you would, and I just met this friend on the road, and I'm staying with this person. Oh, and by the way, um, if by chance you bear a child and it's a girl, cast it out. Among a laundry list of things, expose the child to to death, which was a very common practice in ancient Rome. If they didn't want the child, they would just leave it out to be killed by wild animals and exposure. That reveals uh, a snapshot of how children were viewed as not valuable in the first century, prior to Christ's coming. And even when children were kept, they were raised almost entirely by servants. Um, nurses, slaves, tutors were all incorporated to raise the child. Very rarely, the parents, the parents were engaged uh, firsthand, somewhat minimally, but Christ orients us to those who are the least. And so socially, that was children in the first century. And the church, the early church, receiving Christ's words, effected a sea change of culture. Because you know what early Christians did? 
they would walk by on their daily walking routes, the places where children were known to be cast out and exposed, and they'd rescue them and bring them into their own families, care for them and raise them as Christians. In a Roman era where they, they had abortion back then, they would take these sort of herbicidal poisons, um, these herbal poisons to affect abortions. And the early Christians said, don't do that. Even life in the womb is valuable. The, so Christians were pioneers receiving Jesus' commandment to care for the least of these from the very beginning. Adoption was um, a very ordinary Christian practice in the earliest days of the church. And what we see is this actually totally shifts the culture that what we get these glimpses by the 3rd or 4th century of just the way people instinctively speak about children has changed. No longer just to be something just cast out at a whim, but a thing to be cared for and attended to and loved with a, something we recognize today. Like, of course parents should be tender and caring for their kids. That wasn't always an of course. That's actually sort of the filtered down reception of receiving Jesus' teaching, which says, pay attention to the least of these. They matter. Things that are intuitive to us actually come from our Lord's reorientation of greatness. Um, just so we think of it a normal thing for churches to have Sunday school, right? For kids, as we have um, in the evenings, and, and we have a nursery in the mornings. But to say it's meaningful and valuable to pay attention to the kids. But just uh, Christ's commands always triumph the flesh, it still can be hard to get volunteers for children's ministry, right? How, I, once in seven years has someone ever come forward and volunteered and said, I'd like to help in children's ministry. Right? Usually I'm calling saying, can you please help? Can you please help? And it's because we still think, well, it's kids. Right? We, there's still that instinct. That it's just, they're kids. We still can be challenged by the Lord's command to attend to receive the least of these because we receive him in so doing. A picture that comes to mind when I hear this scripture. Um, sometimes the world shows us as Christians what we should be doing. Um, I remember I was working uh, at a psychiatric hospital. This was before I was ordained and the medical director was a Muslim man and uh, his name was Dr. Palavan. And medical director, so he's the big dog in the whole hospital. He runs the whole show. Uh, and he wore these immaculate suits. I don't know enough about suits to know how expensive they were, but they looked expensive. Um, and um, he was trained as a child psychologist. And when you'd walk by, I'd walk by these uh, sort of uh, clinic room, the clinic rooms, the clinical rooms, and they had, you know, the little windows like you have in hospital rooms to see in the door. And occasionally, when I'd see him still uh, practicing psychology with the kids, he'd be there in his really fancy suit, he was immaculately dressed at all times. He'd be there flat on his belly, prostrate with his head on his hands, with some poor child huddled in the corner who suffered something terrible, which is why they're in a psychiatric hospital. And there he was, just in all humility. This big, when, we, when he was with adults, we were all like, Oh, yes, Dr. Palavan. You know, he, was, he commanded this respect. But in the clinic, he was like this, fully on his belly with these little kids. And it was a picture to me of honoring the least of these. God bless Dr. Palavan, and may he come to the knowledge of Christ. So I want to underscore then just three small details of this passage um, for us today. The first is very simply the command, and I hope you already see the range of application. It's not just to attend to children, although that is clearly the main thrust of the letter of Jesus' command. But it's just to, to um, look the opposite direction from what we are usually inclined at the social ladder. 
But usually when you go into a party, maybe even a church fellowship party, and this is instinct for all of us, right? You kind of see, oh, who's a bit higher up the ladder? Well, I'll go chat with them, right? The Christian way is, well, who's lower on the ladder? Who does everyone think is a little bit awkward? You know, who will I not gain any social points by spending more time with? Well, I'm, I'm going to go chat with that person. We actually already make these judgments all the time about the ladder, and so Christ is saying, just shoot down the ladder, not up. In social circles, in society, that whenever you go down the ladder, right, these are all human judgments, but when you find that the person you think is least, who you perceive in the social sphere of things to be least, and you go to attend in a sort of attitude of service and reception to that person, you're receiving Christ. Actually receiving the Lord, that's what it says. That's what Jesus said. You're socializing. That's why that, partly why what suggested the hymn uh, for this morning. What a friend we have in Jesus that we encounter his friendship in the, in the friendship of the least of these. The second detail I wanted to underscore is just, um, I just love this gospel detail. I hope you caught it. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. So you can kind of picture this band of adults and this child in the middle. And taking him in his arms. The Greek word is hug. I think what a perfect, what a, I'm so grateful for that tiny detail that our Lord hugged this child. That he is a great savior and he's a tender savior. And so just to think about the embrace of Christ. The embrace of Christ. That that's in his character to embrace the least of these. To embrace the least of these. And lastly, sort of out of that very truth, that everything in this passage is imitative of Christ, and Christ said he only did what he saw the Father doing and said what the Father said to say. So this is revealing the character of God towards us. right? Stooping down the social ladder, which for him is a cosmic ladder, and coming to us day by day, listening to our little prayers, attending to our little requests and our needs, to try and win us to himself and to show us his great love. I want to end with a quote, actually, from John Chrysostom, that church father I just mentioned, um, which shows two things. The first is that how um, the view of children changed as a reception of this commandment, um, but also the final thing I'll end with. Because of their love, fathers, even if they be rather philosophic and scholarly, are not ashamed to speak lispingly with their children. For if a father, a human father, does not consider his own dignity, but lisps to his children and calls food and drink, not by their proper Greek names, but by some childish and barbarous word, so far more does God. A sweet picture. So far more does God come down and speak in ways that we can hear at exactly where we're at in our discipleship and understanding and values that through his word, through the encouragements of fellow Christians in prayer, through his spirit, he comes and speaks to us Lispingly, like how we would with kids. We, um, in our family, we always say, Daisy says the word goodness, nudness. So whenever we're surprised, we say, Oh my nudness! Right? Entering the world as they speak it. That's the Lord. Entering the world as we speak it. Coming to the least of these to love us and make us his own. Amen.